welcome to a night of total terror. Welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast, Episode 1. This will be a fortnightly podcast where we'll be giving you in-depth reviews, trivia and news. Here at the Undead Wookiee Cast, our focus will be on sci-fi and horror. We will cover various platforms such as film, books, audiobooks and graphic novels. However, there will be times when we feature other genres as my nerdiness knows no bounds. For this episode, I will be podcasting solo, but as time progresses, the team will expand as I already have some great co-hosts lined up as well as some guests. So let's kick things off with our feature review of one of my all-time favourite films. The film that's responsible for my lifelong obsession with zombies is George A. Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. Haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the Living Dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night. Of the living dead. Okay, I'm going to jump right in and say this is a must-own, not just for horror fans, but for film fans. This is a masterpiece. Uh, Made in 1968, directed by George A. Romero and produced by Carl Hardman and Russell Strainer. Russell Strainer also stars in this film. He plays Johnny and utters the immortal lines... They're coming to get you, Barbara. One of the things that I love about this film is that it is the perfect example of how an independent film can catch the imagination of an audience and almost single-handedly reinvent a genre. Yes, there were zombie movies before Night of the Living Dead. You only have to go back and look at 1932's White Zombie or Revolt of the Zombie in 1936. However, the modern zombie movie came into being with Night of the Living Dead, with its siege-style structure, levels of violence and social commentary that would really become the calling card for Romero. So, 
What about the story? Well, it's a relatively straightforward story. A group of strangers thrown together, trapped in a farmhouse and forced to fend off the living dead. It's off with Barbara, played by Judith O'Den, uh, who, along with her brother Johnny, are out to visit their father's grave. Whilst in the cemetery, Barbara is attacked by a strange-looking man who clearly has just been reanimated. In the ensuing struggle, Johnny is knocked unconscious, leaving Barbara to flee the cemetery and find refuge in a farmhouse all the while being pursued by this ghoul. Interestingly enough, nobody in this film actually uses the word zombie. Romero himself referred to them as ghouls. Barbara is joined by Ben, who quickly takes charge of the situation, and they begin fortifying the house. All the while, the undead begin to swarm outside. During the process of securing the house, he discovers a family uh, and a young couple hiding down in the basement. The family are made up of the cowardly husband, Harry played by Carl Heidman, who I said at the beginning of the show was also the producer. His wife, Helen, played by Marilyn Eastman, and their sick daughter, Karen, played by Kyra Sean, who is the real-life daughter of Carl Hardman. Also in the basement is Judy and her boyfriend, Tom, played respectively by Judith Ridley, and Keith Wayne. Almost immediately, a tension between Ben and Harry, which poses a greater threat than the undead gathering at their door. I said right at the start uh, of the show that I absolutely loved this film. Um, however, there are a few things that, you know, just a few little niggles. For example, Barbara is incredibly annoying. She is completely useless in every situation and is practically catatonic for the vast part of this film. Um, and to the point where you just, quite frankly, you want to see her getting eaten and torn limb from limb. The other uh, problem I have, with, particularly with performance within the film, is Harry. I find his performance a little bit theatrical, a little bit stagey. Uh, this is probably because most of the actors, well, in fact, all of the actors in the film uh, came from a theatre company uh, in Pittsburgh that Romero was familiar with, and he just sort of, you know, they auditioned them and then got them involved within the production. Um, but his performance in particular does come across as very, very stagey and, and quite big at times, which can be a little bit jarring. But what we have here is, in our true lead of the film, is Dwayne Jones as Ben. He is outstanding. What Dwayne Jones uh, brings to this film is realness and a political undertone that would come to sort of epitomise the original trilogy. Now, when I say the original trilogy, that's Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Um, But having this strong African-American lead in 1968 adds a layer of real depth to the film. But without going into too many spoilers, it's Dwayne Jones that gives the ending of this film real bite. No matter how many times I see this film, that ending still gets me. It is an absolute shocker. Now, for people who haven't seen this, I'm not going to give it away, but you need to just watch it. You need to see it right the way through because if you don't, you are really, really missing out on sort of a key element of this film. Um, which gives it that real edge that is still shocking today. You know, the other thing to remember is that Night of the Living Dead really reflects the level of unrest that was happening across the world at the time. You've got, you know, the youth culture was becoming more and more prominent. You've got the anti-Vietnam War movement was at its height uh, for the first time. You know, you had the brutal reality of war being beamed into people's living rooms. And today, I think we take that. Um, we take that for granted because obviously we have news at our fingertips. We have news on demand. We can look at various images, you know, almost instantly. 
But here is a film that uses news reports, televised press conferences, news flashes and radio reports. Now, all of these have become staples of this genre. Um, you know, cutbacks and uh, news reports and sort of uh, pressurised news people. You know, all of these type of things that we sort of see as very, very commonplace today. But this was something that was being used to great effect. Now, I know H.G. Wells did something very, very similar when he did uh, War of the Worlds. Well, he didn't do something similar. He created a fake news report and created Havoc, which is really, you know, which was completely mind-blowing at the time. Light years ahead of itself. But what these news reports bring to this film um, is a realness that I don't think audiences had quite seen before um, and can be quite unsettling. Um, but for me, a key element to this film is the power that having a lack of knowledge as to what's going on around you. Um, there's no prologue or setup. There are no rage-infected monkeys, no flying saucers, no voodoo. But slowly, just like the zombies, the world starts to fall apart. And those reliable infrastructures we all depend upon start to crumble. You know, even the classic family unit here falls apart, which leads to one of the film's classic kills. Um, and it's quite a brutal kill. Um, not going to sort of go too much into detail, because again, don't want to spoil anything. But again, it's still quite shocking today, and I think it holds up really, really well. You know, even by today's standards, though, the levels of violence of this film, they can, they can still shock. Uh, the FX and makeup are simple. Um, you don't get the level of gore that you get later on in the in the trilogies with uh, Dawn of the Dead and particularly Day of the Dead. Um, but because it's filmed in black and white, you don't quite get to see all that sort of you know all the gore and all the entrails. Um, interestingly enough, the, um, the the sort of half-eaten body that Barbara stumbles across at the beginning of the film, um, Romero made that himself using a. Uh, various bits and pieces that he found lying around and the eyes that he used for the zombie uh, for the corpse sorry is uh, ping pong balls uh, which I always thought was quite clever you know and again what for me what works really really well here is the siege narrative I'm a big fan of siege narrative movies um, the idea of a group of people being stuck in one place and the longer that they remain in this one place the more dangerous it becomes you know, and then you get this great debate between uh, the characters. You know, um, should they stay in the main house? Uh, should they go down into the cellar? You've, which you know automatically puts Harry and Ben at opposites. You've got Ben saying they need to stay up here and they can fortify the house. And then you've got Harry saying, "No, let's get down to the basement. Let's lock it, lock ourselves in. Let's board the doors." You know, it brings this extra layer of conflict um, to the film, and that works really, really well for me. One of the other things that I really love uh, about this film is that none of the characters really know what they're doing. Um, they quite often make the wrong decisions, um, you know, and also nobody here conveniently happens to be a down on their like ex special forces guy. Uh, here they have only one gun uh, that Ben has and clearly, you know, doesn't really know to use. Um, Otherwise, the characters are having to use, you know, whatever they can lay their hands on. So they're setting fire to settees, they're, you know, getting hold of kitchen knives, all these sort of things. And it adds a real layer of grittiness to it. Um, 
And for me, I'm a big, big fan of the sort of zombie apocalypse genre and siege narrative and those type of things. And it just adds this this layer of realness to it because, you know, you'd be thinking, oh, I'm in my house right now. What have I got? Well, I've got a couple of kitchen knives. I've got this. I am lucky, you know, I haven't got a gun to hand. Um, and at no, you know, there's only a couple of times where Ben realizes, well, if I shoot him in the head, that's going to do the job. But other than that, he's wasting bullets when he's shooting them in the chest. And you're thinking, oh, come on, Ben, shoot them in the head. You've done it twice. Come on, work it out, work it out. But actually, he never quite gets to that point. Um, so it does add, you know, uh, when the action kicks in, it does add this sort of realness to it. Um, what I really like as well is that when it really kicks in, uh, it really does go for it. And the tension builds and builds and builds. Um and it works so well. You know, the tension between the characters is palpable. You've got the threat outside of the people trying to get in. You've got the threat inside. For me, it just defines the genre. And I hope, and I think it still holds up really, really well. So like I said, right at the beginning of the show, for me, this is a must-own. Uh, this is a 10 out of 10. Um, I think, you know, this film completely sets the standard. You know, don't get me wrong, there are other fantastic zombie films, which we're going to be talking about uh, in sort of future episodes and those type of things. But for me, Night of the Living Dead really, really, really sets the standard, sets the tone. Um, and I'm probably not going to shut up about it um, during the course of um, of the next couple of episodes and things. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's a 10 out of 10. It's a must, must own it is a great film. Uh, interesting piece of trivia for you. A copy of this film is actually in the Louvre in Paris. Also, um, when it came to the distribution rights of this film, um, it was sold to a company called the uh, Walter Reed Organization. And when it came to looking at the finer print of their contract, uh, the producers uh, had completely forgotten to add a copyright notice uh, when changing the title, uh, something that the law at the time required for a, a work to maintain the sole rights of his creators, which effectively put this film in the public domain. Um, so that's why there are multiple versions of Night of the Living Dead, uh, not all of them great. However, the one uh, remake um, that I think is well worth a look at is the great special effects gore guru, I suppose, Tom Savini directed his version of Night of the Living Dead. Um, and I can never remember the actor's name, but it's the guy from Candyman, plays the part of Ben in it. And they address quite a, you know, a couple of the issues um, that Night of the Living Dead has, particularly Barbara. Um, there's, a, there's a really interesting uh, tweak on her character. But if you get the opportunity, check out, I think it's 1990, um, it's Tom Savini's directed Night of the Living Dead. Um, but also he worked with George a. Romero on this, and Romero worked on the script alongside Savini. And what you get is a really, really good, solid remake of the film. And that concludes part one of tonight's show. Now in part two, we will be looking at Clive Barker's book, The Hellbound Heart. First published in 1986 as part of an anthology series, it was later adapted into the movie Hellraiser in 1987, directed by Clive Barker himself. So, what is the Hellbound Heart about? Quite simply, it's about one man's pursuit of pleasure. However debauched that it may be, leading a very hedonistic life, the character Frank Cotton tracks a puzzle box that holds the key to opening a gateway to another realm. Now, within this realm lurk the ritually mutilated people known as the Cenobites. 
Now, each of these characters have um, varying sort of uh, scarification uh, and S&M kind of mannerisms to them. And they could only be called to Earth via this schism that the puzzle box uh, opens up. Now, the puzzle box is known as the Lament Configuration. Now, I sometimes I may have butchered that name because I quite often misread it whilst I was reading the book. Um, but obviously, the one key characteristic that draws lots of people to the Hellbound Heart and to the Hellraiser franchise is the characters of the Cenobites. And it really is a strength of the book that actually you're only given a very small amount of detail about them. But what Barker does is he creates this other world, this this extra-dimensional realm where these these creatures lurk, this idea of that they're there. There's a very, very thin veil between our world and theirs. Um, and they're all controlled by a character known as the Engineer, um, himself you don't really know a lot about whether it's a he whether it's a she but what we do know is this is where the character Pinhead came from now the name Pinhead came about uh, on set of the Hellraiser movie and isn't actually mentioned in the book at all it's not the character Pinhead himself isn't really described until the later sequels of the book now so let's get back to the storyline of the book so what we've got here we've got Frank who's leading this very sort of debauched life and he's looking for ever increasing thrills so he's discovered the lament configuration puzzle box and what he wants to do now is open this gateway to another world now what happens is that once frank has opened the box and enters into the agreement with the cenobites he soon realizes that he has bitten off far more than he, more than he can chew and his idea of pleasure and what the cenobites think is pleasure are two very 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 different things and this obviously leads to some of the book's really, really sort of grisly descriptions of sort of sadomasochistic acts. Now, once the Cenobites have got hold of Frank and they've tortured him and they've done all sorts of grisly, grisly things to him and nearly driven him completely mad, um, we move on and we're introduced to uh, Frank's brother, Rory, and his wife, Julia, who move into their late grandmother's house Unbeknownst to Rory and his wife, this is the house where Frank um, had entered into his agreement with the Cenobites and was dragged off to the other realm. But somehow Frank has managed to escape that realm and his remains. Um, so essentially he's escaped that realm and he's been uh, almost flayed alive. So he's pretty much just a corpse and he is now hiding in the spare room of uh, Frank and Julia's house. Now, one of the things that we come to learn as you go through the book is that Frank and Julia have a bit of a past and Frank slowly but surely begins to make his presence known. Add to this, uh, add to this little sort of mix, you've got Kirsty, a friend of Rory, who begins to suspect that all is not well. At roughly 128 pages, The Hellbound Heart is a quick read. And despite being a novella, it is crammed with detail. And I mean, fairly graphic detail at times. This is a story that draws you in. And despite the unlikability of its characters, you still want to know what happens. Why are the characters unlikable? Well, in my humble opinion, um, they have very, very few redeemable features. Uh, quite blunt bluntly, uh, Frank is a pervert. 
Uh, Rory is so browbeaten and pathetic, it's hard to root for him. Julia is such a bitch, you just can't wait for her to get what's coming to her. And Kirsty is all a bit wet. But it's Barker's ability to keep the pace up. He gives us glimpses of the world that these other creatures live in um, without giving away their mystery. The, you know, He creates this very sordid world and allows us, the reader, just to peek in at times. This is a very, very gory read. Barker pulls no punches and he never shies away from the grotesque. Whether it's podly fluids, hooks ripping people apart, sadomasochism, um, he conjures up some horrific images of scarification. It's all there on the page. Um, I did enjoy this book. At times, um, I did find some of its elements a little hard going. Um, but there are also things that I really, really liked about this. And of course, for me, it was getting to know a little bit more of the background about the Cenobites. And those creatures that would come to become, go on to become those great horror icons of films such as Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. Barker gives us just enough detail to keep our attention. It wasn't until much later on that they became fully formed characters, as I've already mentioned, and Pinhead himself was not fleshed out um, until the sequels. Now, for me, this book is a 7.5 out of 10. It's a good read. It's a must read for all fans of the Hellraiser franchise. And I would recommend this as a quick read. I wouldn't possibly say it's something that you take on your holidays with you, but it's a good read. Um, and I enjoyed it anyway. So if you're still with us after me bumbling through the second part of this uh, podcast, I'd like to say thank you very much. Now, on episode two, we will be discussing Batman, The Killing Joke. We'll be looking at the recently released uh, animated film, and we'll also be looking at the 1988 graphic novel. Uh, I'm very excited because I'll be joined by a very special guest who is a walking bat encyclopedia. That's Mr. Jonathan Hunt, who will be joining me. And we will be, once again, giving in-depth reviews, uh, our thoughts, our feelings, what we thought about it. And I'm really, really excited about this episode. Now, the only thing left for me to do now is tell is to let you guys know that you can find me on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter uh, under at Hugh Said That. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank you for your time. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And there's only one thing left for me to say in the immortal words of Count Duckula. Good night out there, whatever you are. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.